Hello, welcome to this week's Lancet podcast. I'm Rona MacDonald and I'm filling in for Richard Lane for another week while he's on holiday. This week's issue of The Lancet covers some very interesting and controversial areas. For example, we've published the most comprehensive meta-analysis to date, showing the possible causal relationship between cannabis use and psychotic and affective illness later in life, and I'll be interviewing one of the authors of that paper a bit later on. We also publish a study which shows that nurses are more than twice as likely as the general population to develop occupational asthma. Dr Manolis Cochevines from the Centre of Epidemiology in Barcelona, Spain and colleagues also found that cleaners were up to 71% at higher risk of developing occupational asthma compared to the general population and that workplace conditions could be responsible for up to 25% of new asthma cases in industrialised countries. The authors studied almost 7,000 people from 13 countries who had previously taken part in the European Community Respiratory Health Survey. They found that the worst occupations for excess risk of developing asthma were printing, nursing, woodworking, agriculture and forestry and cleaning. The authors believe there could be a number of reasons for the increased risk to nurses. They say nurses could be exposed to sensitising substances, respiratory allergens and irritants including sterilisers and disinfectants. And they conclude that the findings of this study suggest that the frequency of occupational asthma is systemically underestimated and that reduction of exposure and early and complete identification of workers with symptoms suggestive of asthma would help prevent the disease. And in our review this week, we look at assisted reproduction techniques. IVF, or in vitro fertilisation, has been done for nearly 30 years in developed countries and at least 1% of births are from assisted reproductive techniques, or ART. These children now represent a substantial proportion of the population, but little is known about their health. So Dr Alistair Sutcliffe from the Institute of Child Health in London and Dr Michael Ludwig from Hamburg, Germany, reviewed data published over the last 25 years on IVF and intracytoplasmic sperm injection and used almost 4,000 articles to compile their analysis. They found that spontaneous abortion rates were between 20-34% to higher for couples using assisted reproductive techniques, ART, compared to those spontaneously conceiving. They also found that for couples using ART, the risk of preeclampsia occurring is increased by 55%, where there is also an increased risk of stillbirth, low birth weight, very low birth weight, or the baby being small for gestational age. They also found that the risk of major malformations is 30% higher in babies born to ART couples, and there is also an increased risk of cerebral palsy. The authors conclude that these risks should not be ignored when counselling couples considering fertility treatment, and they also conclude that long-term follow-up of children born after ART is needed. And now to something a bit different. One of our comments this week controversially says that only a quarter of the 1.5 billion donated by G8 leaders to eradicate disease among poor children will be spent on the cost of vaccines, while three quarters will go to profits, particularly for the pharmaceutical industry. Professor Donald Light from the Netherlands Institute of Advanced Study says that the current G8 contract is set to pay between 5 and $7.5 a dose, about four times what he estimates to be the average cost. Thus, only about 300 million or fewer children can benefit from the donations, while if the G8 used another strategy, 1.2 billion or more children could benefit. Professor Light questions whether poor countries and donors will stand by and watch G8 paying four times the average sustainable cost for these vaccines. He thinks it would be better for G8 leaders to negotiate for licences and technology transfer so that third world-based companies could compete for long-term contracts. The donated money would then provide a double benefit – 
it would boost the economies of low-income countries as well as lift the burden of disease. The author concludes that the G8 should negotiate the lowest sustainable non-profit price in order to maximise the number of lives saved and children who can benefit. In her long leader this week, we tackle the controversial subject of abortion. Millennium Development Goal 5 to reduce the maternal mortality rate by three quarters before 2015 is unlikely to be achieved without abolishing unsafe abortion. 20 million unsafe abortions are done every year and 97% of these are done in developing countries. Almost 70,000 women die every year from unsafe abortions and 5.3 million are left with temporary or permanent disabilities. Former President Bill Clinton argued that abortion should be legal, safe and rare, but for many of the world's most vulnerable women, it remains illegal, unsafe and common. The leader concludes that making abortion illegal, starving development agencies of funds to promote all forms of contraception or suppressing discussion by fear will not cause the problem of abortion to disappear. Instead, it is time to remove the gag and ensure that all women have access to safe, which means legal, abortion. And now back to that meta-analysis on cannabis use. I'm now joined by Dr Stanley Zamet from the Department of Psychological Medicine at the University of Cardiff, who's one of the authors in this paper. Stanley, can you tell us a bit about what you did in this paper and what your main findings were? Well, we looked at all the studies that have been published to date and that examine the relationship between cannabis use and then subsequent risk of developing uh, either psychotic illnesses, where people have delusions or hallucinations, or uh, mood disorders such as depression. And what we found was there was a, a consistent association, certainly, between cannabis use and psychosis, so that people who use cannabis had a greater risk of developing some kind of psychotic outcome later on in life. One of the difficulties is that these types of studies don't allow you to be absolutely certain that the association is is a causal one. So for example, it could well be that people who use cannabis are different from people who don't use any drugs on a number of characteristics, some of which may themselves be risk factors for psychosis. Such as? Well, for example, people who use cannabis may be more likely to use other drugs than people who don't use any cannabis. And, and it could be that these other drugs themselves that increase risk of psychosis. Or they could have particular types of personality traits that make them, again, more at risk of psychosis. The studies that we looked at all tried to take into account some of these characteristics. And part of the association was explained by these other variables. So around probably about half the association was due to these other factors. But nevertheless, even when all these factors had been taken into account, there still remained an association between cannabis and, and subsequent risk of psychosis, which is perhaps supportive of some kind of causal relationship. So it all lies on the studies that you chose then. How did you choose them and how confident are you that the results are real? Well, uh, we only looked at studies that were longitudinal. In other words, where people at the start of the study didn't have a, a psychotic illness, some of whom were using cannabis, some people weren't, and then people were followed up over time to compare the incidence. Of, of new cases of psychosis in those two groups. Um, you know, I th- we're fairly confident that we picked all the studies that had been published up to the time that we wrote up this paper. And the quality of the studies, it was something that we looked at in quite a lot of detail to see how well they assessed whether there were other non-causal explanations for the associations they described. And most of the studies did this reasonably well, certainly in relation to the psychotic outcomes, although many of the studies that looked at depression and, and other mood-related outcomes, the quality of those studies wasn't so good and therefore the confidence that we have in the findings in relation to those outcomes is is certainly less than in relation to the psychotic outcomes. The people in the 35 studies that you were left with, were they from all around the world or were they from specific countries in particular? 
They were fairly widely distributed. So there were studies from Australia, New Zealand, from the USA, studies from various countries within Europe. Okay, so this is really a universal finding. Yes, certainly for psychosis. There were seven studies we found that looked at psychotic outcomes and six of those showed this association of increased risk. The studies for, de- for depression and, and anxiety were much less consistent. So some studies found an increased risk. A lot of studies didn't find any association and some found a decreased risk. So it was, it was just more inconsistent. But certainly the findings for psychosis were fairly consistent. And how does this fit into the studies that have been done before? Is yours the biggest and the best? Well, there have been lots of reviews of the literature. One of the main differences, I think we've probably done a more thorough assessment of the quality of all the studies included, rather than just taking at face value the results that they publish. We've actually looked at to what extent they might have minimised sort of non-causal explanations for their findings. So it leaves us then being pretty confident in the results that we can be almost certain that cannabis use leads to increased risk of psychosis. No, I wouldn't go that far. I don't think you can be certain that the results show a causal relationship. The trouble is that these kinds of studies, although I've said that studies have tried to take into account these other factors that might explain the association, it's always possible that there are other characteristics that people haven't thought about and haven't adjusted for, which might still explain the rest of the association. That seems unlikely, but it is possible. What could one of these things be? Well, it's hard to think of something off the top of my head, but for example, you know, studies have adjusted for a wide range of different characteristics, including things like personality traits or family history or, or other substance use, but there just may well be something else that people haven't thought about which could explain this association. The only way of getting rid of that uncertainty is by doing randomised controlled trials, but clearly that's not a feasible option in this scenario. So what we end up with is we have to say, well, the best available evidence is the evidence we get from these longitudinal studies. And what we can say is the evidence is that there still seems to be a relationship between cannabis and psychosis, even after we adjust for these other factors. But there's always the possibility that it might be explained by something else. So uncertainty, I think, is inevitable. But we end up with a situation where there isn't any better evidence out there. There's not going to be much better evidence, I don't think, in the near future. And we're going to have to make some kind of decisions about what we advise the public with the best available evidence that we have at at the present time. So what would you advise the public just now and what would you advise public health professionals as well? Well, in terms of public health professionals, I think the message is, I mean, people are already advising people that cannabis can cause an increased risk of psychotic illnesses. And I I think certainly that's something we think needs to be stressed quite strongly. In terms of the public, I think it's very important that people, especially young people, are just aware that there are potentially quite serious consequences of of using cannabis. Now, the individual risk of developing an illness such as schizophrenia is probably still quite low, even in people who use cannabis regularly. But nevertheless, it might be a much higher risk for perhaps less severe psychotic outcomes. And the risk might also be much higher for people who use you know, particularly heavy amounts or very, very regular use of cannabis. So I think that the message is to be aware of the risk and people should, especially if they start to notice any, if they have any symptoms, unpleasant symptoms after they use cannabis, for example, a lot of anxiety or feelings of paranoia, then this I think should be a warning signal for them to either stop using or if they find that's too difficult, perhaps to cut down how frequently they use cannabis or the strength of the cannabis that they use. And perhaps to notice these sort of affecting their friends as well. You know, if, if people's friends are, are obviously having some kind of um, unpleasant reactions to using cannabis, then that might be a warning or, or a, something to, to, to alert them to the, to the fact that they might need some help with, with cutting down how much they use. That sounds like some very sound advice. Dr. Stanley Zamet, thank you very much. And you can read the full paper on cannabis use in this week's issue of The Lancet. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. And Richard Lane should be back with you again next week. 
So for me, Rona McDonald, bye for now.